Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me in today's episode are Emmett and Amory from the My Wall Street analyst team. Today we discuss Instagram's new Twitter killer threads, but before we get into it, I just want to give a quick word to our sponsors of Vodafone Business. Vodafone Business has always been a reliable provider for mobile and broadband needs, but now they are so much more. They now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders. They're no longer a telecoms provider, they're a comprehensive technology partner. They're stepping up to help Irish businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world, offering insightful digital advice and cutting edge solutions on top of their dependable mobile network and broadband services. So if you're on a digital journey yourself, remember Vodafone Business is there to support, guide and empower you every step of the way. Emmett, Amory, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. It's good to have the full house on. It's been a while since we've all been on. Yeah. It is actually. That's that's summer for you. No two people are in the same building together except the holiday makers. Yeah, I was about to say the same country, it seems to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, not bad problems. Amory, you're a bit under the weather. We're saying this is your Michael Jordan flu game. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 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 also I'm conscious that I'm congested and sometimes that can be very annoying to listen to, so I'm going to attempt to turn off the mic for the sniffs. <laughs> just to make this a more enjoyable experience for all of us. Okay, well, you could have like that husky jazz room voice going as well, you know? Yeah, like Phoebe and Friends, and she gets really sick, and all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, you're a really great singer. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's what I'm hoping for. This is it. This is the next step in your podcasting career. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, well, let's get into the show. So, and I think there's only really one place to start, and that's Instagram threads or the Twitter killer, as it's kind of being thrown around. So, Amory, do you want to go serious or stupid with this line of questioning? <laughs> because we could go very deep on MMA fights between Zuckerberg and Musk. Or, and this is an actual quote from the richest man in the world. Um, a literal dick measuring contest proposed yeah. by Musk on Twitter this week. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, not great, but childish. It also meant I was forced to see a photo of Mark Zuckerberg shirtless earlier today. I did not enjoy that. And um, yeah, it's just it's been such a weird like moment of tech competition and they're just yelling at each other but they're not yelling at each other directly because they refuse to use each other's services it's 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 interesting um but i suppose like if we just want to talk about actually what threads is that might be worthwhile um i'm hoping our 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 mention of dick measuring contests will mean that this successfully makes it through the family friendly filter we're supposed to be using but time will tell yeah a richard measuring contest (laughs) there we go (laughs) Um, so basically taken directly from the meta website and just a couple of bullet points, which I ha- we have to do because we actually can't access threads because of the EU, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So threads is a separate Instagram app, but you have to have an Instagram account in order to access it. So basically your account rolls over, you get to keep your same username, which is nice. Um, an unfortunate thing that early adopters have figured out, though, is that if you get onto threads and you realize it's not for you if you want to delete your threads account you also have to delete your instagram which is that's a bit annoying to be honest um basic run through of the service basically it's a 500 character limit very similar to twitter threads can be liked and you can comment on them um interestingly there are no hashtags so there's no way for information that you put out there to like move beyond your direct community unless the algorithm picks it up now this is kind of the, the interesting thing so there's like no trending topics there's no like for you tab like we've seen Twitter roll out in the last couple of years. Um, this is solely the algorithm making decisions, finding tweets from across the the Threadiverse, I guess, rather than the Twitterverse, to present to you. Um, 
And so that kind of means that there's not as much transparency, I guess, in, in what information you're going to have access to. Um, that also kind of means that I suppose in many ways, like as we're going to talk about later, like they've said that they don't want this to become, you know, like a place for people to consume their news. They don't want it to be political. They don't want to kind of get into the conspiracy theory stuff. They just I think they're viewing it as the written version of TikTok. You know, you go on there for a bit of light entertainment. You want to see someone tell some jokes, that type of thing. Um so that'll be interesting to see if, if that if that style is going to work out or if people are going to naturally be like, oh, I, I wish there was a way to go on threads and like search for things to do in Vegas and like read tweets about that and see like what people's recommendations are. As of right now, there's there's no capability for that. It's just log in, turn your brain off, float along. Yeah, well, it's still very early doors. And I think they've said that the product isn't finished whatsoever. Yeah. I don't even think it's chronological yet. Have you seen it? No, yeah. So it's not chronological, which, again, is quite interesting. It means that, like, there's a greater opportunity if you're producing content that's evergreen. You know, you, you want you want a joke that's forever funny. You don't want anything that's too relevant. Yeah, and I suppose you avoid the news stories that could make you seem very foolish if, it, if you know, I don't know. Yeah, you, kind you, of you the make, breaking news. You, yeah, you make a statement and it comes it comes below a news story that completely debunks it or something like that. Yeah. So uh, it, it kind of shows where it's directed to. Um, so let's go through it for a bit. Now, it launched Wednesday of last week and reached 100 million users in about five days. That's faster than ChatGPT. And it's not even available in Europe yet, which kind of makes this more amazing. This seems like a pretty big deal, even if we've talked about you know it's still attached to instagram accounts already and you can't delete existing accounts and stuff yeah um the eu thing is 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 definitely interesting the meta has not directly stated what law they're trying to avoid but most of us can guess um which is likely the eu's digital market acts which was passed last year um it was passed in an effort to kind of curb the overreaching power of some of the largest names in tech you know it's not super directed at anyone kind of up and coming um and the 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 probably the detail within that law that is preventing them from launching it in europe is that you have to silo data so if you're meta and you own facebook instagram and whatsapp you cannot allow the data from those services to move in between one another um and this is a competition thing you know they're trying to prevent essentially what is about to happen which is facebook can turn around and say we're going to mimic twitter and put it out and because we already have two billion facebook users we will immediately become the most powerful social media so they're trying to prevent that but also at the same time which is something that is kind of new to me and i had to read up on is when data is allowed to migrate between such large services there is a, a much higher your risk of data leak and of your data being compromised as it's you know moving from instagram to threads and then you know onto facebook or whatever um and so that seems to be the data security thing is what they're most interested in at this time um and we also haven't really heard meta specifically say oh yes we acknowledge that these are the issues the eu has with us here is the approximate timeline for when we expect to get this service compliant and into europe i mean as you said it's very early days we're only in week one but it's interesting to just see them kind of ignore one of the major markets and just say well as for right now we're just going to see where we can get this um 
Uh, we have a, a quote from the New York Times Hard Fork podcast here, which is one kind of dedicated to tech and that type of thing. Um, and it basically, their their kind of expert said it's data leakage is is the main issue that they're uh, that the EU is is likely going to be concerned with here. I would also say just kind of on the data issue, um, Apple because you know how Apple's got this big push towards transparency. Apparently, when you create your Threads account and you download the app, it displays a screen to you from the App Store that just details to you like what data this app is going to be collecting and it is quite literally everything that your iphone has access to like threads wants it all it wants your health info like what are they gonna do with that send you threads to walk um and so i think that could maybe also bring up some issues down the line because of gdpr and uh, i I don't know it's, it's very interesting to see the reality that we have assumed for a really long time which is that regulatory agencies kick off about data and they tell people hey like you should be worried that tech companies have this information on you and then most regular people are like whatever except like the terms and conditions so um definitely some things to watch here i'm interested to see where this goes with the eu because it will maybe then likely shape the product for the better for the rest of the world but as of right now it's just like the data wild west out there just anything that's going uh, meta is going to collect and i assume that that it's hoping to build some kind of ad product down the line yeah i think we're going to get to that for sure but i just want to touch on zuckerberg and facebook in general so they basically made a business out of copying other social media companies in the past i think Mm -hmm. the most obvious one is snapchat and instagram stories do you think threads has the potential to legitimately provide a twitter alternative here um, I think it's all going to come down to the algorithm, which is actually also the big battle between Reels, which is Instagram's competitor to TikTok and TikTok. You know, the the beauty of TikTok, as I mentioned at the top, is you just log in and it goes. There's no, you don't, you know, if you don't want to, you don't have to follow anybody. That algorithm is going to figure you out and show you relevant content. And then if it's not relevant, it'll make adjustments. It'll test you out. You can always tell when it's, it's trying to guess what new topics you might be into. Um, and so I think that that is going to be, the big testing ground here is how good of an algorithm can they make for this? Um, additionally, like the algorithm is going to be very important in terms of controlling fake news, creating an environment that's, you know, a bit more welcoming. I think that's maybe Twitter's big issue at the minute is it's become quite a hostile environment. Um, and I also think the main issue as well with using this uh this, I guess, form of social media that's less about followers is you do have to create an environment in which creators are going to stay on the platform. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you're trying to create a, a word-based entertainment platform, you need to lure some 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 Twitter comedians to come on and be making posts two or three times a day. Because if you, if you don't have the millions and millions and millions of pieces of info to be cycling to people and testing them and seeing what they're interested in, it, it means that it doesn't work. You know, you, the well, your cup must overflow in order to pull off this type of model and from what I've seen from people's early days experiences on the platform a lot of it was just like brands setting up their um, their profiles and then establishing their fun threads persona and how they're going to talk and it meant that like I saw a screenshot of somebody's thread and it was just five branded threads posts one right after another which just kind of shows it is it is still early days for establishing like how people are going to act on this platform particularly as well because the only way that you get a little bit of control of the feed is by following people and all of your Instagram followers have migrated over. And I mean, like I set up my Instagram maybe in 2014, which means that there are a numerous people that I do not need to hear their every passing thought. Like it just is not interesting to me. And so it's definitely, we're definitely in the testing period at the minute to figure out, is this going to be Facebook statuses where it's like, 
Anne-Marie is brushing her teeth? Or is this going to be a place where people are actually putting out interesting information? We're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely early doors. I was just thinking about the brands, um, the brand setting up their identities and stuff on threads. And the fact that it's not on the EU means Ryanair can't just go out and throw (laughs) awfully acerbic abuse to any customer who ever writes into them like they do on Twitter. I know. I'm sure their their 20-year-old intern is throwing their phone at the wall, trying to figure out how to get in there. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so... Instagram has said they won't add advertising to the platform until it's reached critical mass. I don't know what critical mass means if it's not 100 million people, but we're talking big numbers when it comes to Facebook. But ads are coming. I don't think this makes sense without ads. And you were talking about influencers and like people need to be there for a reason. That's how they're going to be there. So we've already reported that Twitter's ad revenue has been slashed in half more, I think. Um, could Thread's become that alternative for advertisers especially if it's steering away from the political discourse which has pushed so many people off twitter yeah i think maybe the enthusiasm we've seen with the brands trying to jump on initially and and just generate a bit of organic growth and they're definitely also in the testing ground they're seeing kind of if this is going to be tiktok like you know like I think often of Duolingo is really the champion of of branding yourself and creating ads on TikTok that aren't really ads. I would say there are a few brands that are going to get away with that. You know, they're they're going to be seen as really likable or personable or funny and people will follow them even though, you know, anything a brand creates is an ad in in essence. Um, It's it's also going to be interesting to see how targeted the ads are going to be. I know in the last couple quarters, we've heard Meta discuss the fact that they have used AI to improve ad targeting. So they're not exactly back to where they were before the iOS updates and before Apple blocked the IDFA tracking. But as I mentioned at the top, like they're collecting an awful lot of data and threads. And so I'm wondering if that is going to give some tools back to advertisers that they have been missing in the last kind of two years. I think that'll be very key. Um, And so far in terms of what we have um, and what the advertising tools are going to look like, all they have stated is that Instagram's branded content features are going to roll over. um, And that stuff is all really set up that every ad works kind of hand in hand with an influencer you know it's a whole set of tools to allow you to generate content and then tag it as being sponsored and have it like look distinct in in the in the feed um and so i think influencers is where we're going to go first but as i said that means we are going to either get a new generation of influencers or we're going to see a mass migration off from another medium i think like twitter would be quite interesting particularly because twitter has never really had an established influencer marketplace i don't think it's ever really struck me as a place where influencers make a lot of money I think that's always been Instagram but I think the type of people who are likely to make engaging Instagram content are are unlikely to be the type of people to make interesting threads content so it might be kind of an open opportunity for you know people who are good at puns or something like that um it's 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 also however interesting to think if we go back to pre-musk twitter you know we go back to when Jack Dorsey was there early days even when like twitter was really a hot commodity in terms of the social media landscape as anyone who ever invested in the company or considered investing in the company or had a look at anything, Twitter was never the best place to sell advertising. And I don't know, is it because Twitter didn't set up a good advertising structure that invited brands in? Or was it just that the medium of microblogging, you know, of a 500 character post, if that's not the best environment to be trying to sell people to? This is the thing that we're going to test right now. Is it, is, was it Twitter's fault or is it the medium's fault? And is it that, you know, it's just very difficult to try and get an ad into 500 words that's in any way compelling? So um, 
to answer your question, I, I think that Instagram and Meta is going to throw absolutely everything it can in terms of generating ads here. I think that they are working on new tools to make it as best as they can. But I am in the back of my head wondering, maybe this is just a fatal flaw of of the medium. And maybe, it, you know, it's too difficult to try and sell people to, in, in this environment. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. But I think it's money better spent than 50 billion quid on the metaverse at the same time. So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I imagine there's a few investors pretty happy about the shift in perspective, I think. Yeah, probably. But I, that, again, sends me back to think about my biggest hindrance towards meta and the thing I've been criticizing them for for like the last three years is they are such a chaser. Like they, they just look, they wait for something to become relevant and then they go after it. And I really don't like that about them. Like I don't like that they pivoted towards the metaverse and then as soon as AI became the relevant thing, they pivot again and they talked about AI all through their calls and now they see this weakness on Twitter and they pivot again. And I just find it very frustrating because it's kind of hard to establish a long-term thesis because they're all over the place. And it also just makes me a bit nervous about like where management is if they can so... I don't know, it just makes me think management isn't thinking in a long-term way and, 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 and has kind of strayed away from relevancy. Yeah, the only pushback I'd have on you there is that when you get to that scale, it's a lot easier to go and copy someone. You don't have to be original. Yeah. Like you look at what Microsoft Teams basically shut down and ate Slack for breakfast, even though yeah. it was by far a worse product. It's like once you have that critical mass, it kind of doesn't matter. And I think that's the same... Same strategy we'll say here with Instagram. Yeah, I suppose then the it's we're waiting to see if there's any kind of regulation thing. It'll be interesting to see, like, what if Threads just pops up next year, you know, in, in the EU because of, of regulation? Because this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to slow down a massive company with 2 billion users from just turning around and say, we're going to have Twitter now. That's We're mm. just going to set that up and launch that. Yeah, so, I don't know. It'll be, yeah. it'll be a fun watch. What I just described doesn't sound great for antitrust law. Um, yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's take a few swings at Twitter here before we close out this section. I think the timing the timing of this is what I love. It comes a week after Elon Musk said he's limiting the amount of tweets people can see. There's talk that it, there's a $300 billion Google Cloud bill not being paid. He's talking about dick measuring contests, Richard measuring contests. I'd on, say you mean $300 million. $300 million, sorry. $300 yeah, billion. Yeah, yeah. Three hundred billion, you own the bank. That's very Austin Powers of you, wasn't it? Three hundred thousand <laughs> billion. No, yeah. three hundred trillion. Anyway, yeah, sorry, but like, I guess the big question here is: Has Musk run this business into the ground, or is there hope for it? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Like that—that that was kind of the the thought I was having last week when everything was kind of unfolding. The limiting tweets was really interesting because I think he presented that to his his public as being, oh, this is just a way to pressure people into getting to getting Twitter blue. Because if you had Twitter blue, you got to see like 2,000 tweets. And I think if you didn't, you only got to see 600. Um, but then it came out from some insiders that this was actually like a secret plea to slow down people's consumption of tweets because they were trying to save on server space. As you, as you mentioned, they have this massive bill from Google. Apparently, what's happening in, internally is that Musk said, hey, I'm not going to pay Google. This is too expensive. We're going to find an alternative. Um, and he kind of, I think, just said that and then did nothing. And so now the team is scrambling to find some kind of alternative. They think it's going to be very, very difficult to migrate um, any of this off of off of Google. So it, it's unlikely that anything is going to come from that. Um, and so, yeah, he was just trying to slow everything, everything down to lower costs, which is never, you, you know, it, it again, makes me think of the social network film when 
when Mark Zuckerberg is frantically using any way he can to buy more server space because he was like the difference between Facebook and every other competitor is that Facebook never goes down. It's always available. It always has to be as fast as possible. People need to be able to get onto it and obsess with it for hours at a time. And so it seems it's crazy to now be like several years into the future and watch a competitor attempting to slow down people's usage in an effort to prevent bankruptcy. So, um, yeah, I, I I think we've also seen a number of issues with their office space. They've been refusing to pay office space. They just got evicted from their office in Colorado and they're being sued because uh, they apparently haven't paid um, rent in Boulder in like 12 or 15 months, something like that. Like, that's never good to see. Um, and really, I could only see Twitter kind of being pulled back from the edge here by playing the legacy card, by playing the we have the established community. We know how to operate in this environment. And in that case, I would say they would basically have to reverse all of the changes that Elon Musk has made during his tenure, which would be difficult. I don't think it would be impossible. Like, I think he needs to bring back a number of moderate moderate ship um, policies that he removed because I think it's really turns the the platform into kind of a cesspool. Um, I think he should maybe walk back the unlimited character feature that you can have access to because it's very annoying to click into a tweet and see that it's the equivalent of six pages long. I just, I, it doesn't seem suitable to the platform at all. Um, and I would say that he probably needs to take a further step back from the platform. I think he alienates probably about 50% of users. Um, and so I don't know. He doesn't seem like the type of person to do any of that because I think it would mean that he has to admit that he was wrong, which like, when has he ever done that? So maybe, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, just to see the brash reaction he had of, of he is he sent a letter to Meta saying that he is looking at a lawsuit because of threads. And one of the main reasons was, well, a number of engineers who were laid off at Twitter subsequently went to Meta and have helped develop threads. And like, I don't know, there's just something so insane to me about laying off a bunch of people and then being upset when they get another job. Um so yeah, I think he he might have he might he yeah he may have well killed killed his platform or it's in, at least in terminal decline and will be dead in in two years I'd say. Yeah, I just want to call out one person here who seems to be the worst person at their job in the world, and it's the guy who was court ordered to monitor Elon's oh, yeah. tweets by Tesla. Where is he? <laughs> what is he doing? I think did he was there not something on that recently where he. Oh, it was something like um, Elon had asked, had appealed it. And then there was some loophole he found where it was like, if it's not directly related to Tesla, it was okay. And be- I guess because Musk owns Twitter, you know, you know, it's not, it's bad. No, it's it's all bad. I think when your CEO is talking about Richard measuring contests, it, it should be relevant to your company. Um, okay, we're going to move on from threads and go to a different kind of thread, and that is Levi Strauss. So, Emmett, you kind of sent me a message earlier this week. You wanted to talk about this company, and I was excited because it's a business everybody knows, but it's not a stock that is common at all. So, it reported last week, and it's a company we've never discussed. So, you said you go in and take a look. Tell me about Levi Strauss. I did, Strauss. yeah, that's right. I just was trying to think of something that's fresh and original. And, uh, you know, we circle around a certain group of businesses quite a lot and, and even sectors and industries. Uh, but we rarely talk about, um, We've I don't think we've ever spoken about Levi's. I think we mentioned it when it IPO'd several years ago and had a quick chat about it. And we haven't discussed it since. And I just thought it'd be a nice one, considering, as you said, uh, they reported recently. And as I usually do, Mike, I think it'd be nice to give a short history of the business. Because, again, as you said, I'm pretty sure every one of our listeners has been a customer 
of Levi's at some point or another, at least worn their apparel, whether they knew it or not. Um, so it's a business we can all relate to at some level. Right, okay, Levi Strauss, that's the man, was a German-born uh, American businessman who founded the company uh, to manufacture mostly, as we all know, blue jeans. And his firm, Levi Strauss and Co., began in 1853 in San Francisco, California. So he was born. I didn't even know San Francisco was that old. <laughs> well, it was definitely there since 1849, wasn't it? Because yeah, the 49ers. 49ers. <laughs> yeah, but hold on. I presume uh, the gold rush wasn't the birth of San Francisco. But, um, I, it wasn't far off, I don't do think. think. Anne Yeah, I think it was a big spur of, of, of why people moved out. You also have to remember, like, California actually wasn't part of the United States until, like, the 1820s mm. or 30s. Yeah, so, that was my thinking. Yeah. Yeah. They did a swap didn't they? They kind of got it off Mexico or something. Um, I think it was more the U.S. marched into Mexico City and yeah. then pointed guns at them and said, you will give us California now. And they said, okay. Mm. Yeah. Happens. Uh, nice one. It's a, ni- it's a nice state. Good, good, good yep. stuff. So anyway, look, Strauss, he was born into a Jewish family in Butenheim, Germany in February 1829. And he moved to New York city with his mom and his two sisters when he was 18 years old right after his dad had died um now at that time he had two older brothers who had emigrated to the city earlier and they were running this dry goods business called j strauss brother and co so in january 1853 strauss became an american citizen and later that year he traveled west to seek his fortune uh, as part of that Californian gold rush. And instead of looking for gold and something we've often discussed in, in pick and shovel plays, instead of becoming a gold prospector and miner himself, he decided to establish a wholesale dry goods business under his own name and serve all these miners rushing into the state. So effectively, this, just as we talk about um, uh, over the years, we've spoken about so many pick and shovel plays. Did, did Levi Strauss, the company, was originally a pick and shovel play. And the business was located in San Francisco City and it became known as Levi Strauss & Co. So Levi Strauss, um, you know, as far as American icons go, you know, Levi's are up there. It's a tier A business. I, I, I think you'd have to agree. I mean, Coca-Cola. Blue, blue, blue jeans, yeah. apple pie, and I don't know, Ford F-150 exactly. or something. <laughs> exactly. Ford, Coke, Disney. You know, these are the brands that are really part of the biography of America. I mean, part a, a chapter of American history is commercial business and how American businesses generally have risen to dominate uh, not only in the US, but across the world. And I think Levi's is a, is a, a tier A example of such a business. So anyway, Levi Strauss is one of the many businesses today, um, as I said, that was born from the gold rush and the genesis of the blue jeans uh, in popular culture. But as you probably know, Mike, are you in France at the minute? Yeah. Right, okay. So the genesis of blue jeans themselves actually came um, from... Uh, denim and denim is as i'm sure a lot of our listeners know is a a kind of a twill fabric (laughs) which came from the word serge denim which is first woven in neem in france denim denim of of denim so that's where the word came from absolutely no relevance whatsoever we're we're going pure history we've got the california gold rush we've got yeah 
Origins of Denim. Okay. We've got all of San Francisco. Interesting is. though. To be fair, that you was know, a very gotta... good fun fact. Yeah, it yeah. was a fun fact, it. and you know, yeah, and it, it came as I said from Neiman, France, presumably before 1873, and I'll explain why. Because, um, so what happened was in 1872, uh, when a Nevada tailor, a Reno, Nevada tailor called Jacob Davis, he wrote to Levi Strauss about a process he invented where he basically put a rivet on the pocket uh, on the corners of men's pants to make them stronger. And he said to Strauss, I think we should jointly patent this process. Why he approached Levi Strauss, I'm not entirely sure, but he did and they did. And they received the patent on the 20th of May in 1873, which was effectively the birth of the product. That's the American icon. Anyway, the process allowed them to create a more durable type of work pant, which we now know as blue jeans. And, and the first jeans that Strauss and Davies made were called waist overalls. And they had one back pocket, one watch pocket, um, a cinch, suspender buttons and a rivet on the crotch. And we've discussed crotches of pants on this show more than ECB and inflation, I think. But anyway, that's what they had. But the, anyway, they're they made out of denim and it was dyed indigo. Uh, the color we're also familiar with and it gave them that color that, that more or less jeans eventually ended up coming back to. So in 1886, a now iconic leather patch was added to the back of the Levi jeans, you know, the one with the two horses going in opposite direction, trying mm. to pull apart a pair of jeans. And uh, I guess it was trying to impute their um, their strength and their durability and all the rest. So that that little leather patch that sits on the back of Levi's has been around for whatever, 140 years or whatever. So over the years, Levi's jeans gained popularity, of course, firstly amongst workers and cowboys and ranchers and and then among young people during the mid 20th century. And the Levi Strauss company, as we all know, continues to be one of the major players in the global apparel industry. And before I kind of shut up about ancient history, Levi Strauss himself uh, remained active in the management of his business until his death in 1902. So he's not long gone. And he was known for his charitable contributions, uh, particularly to Pacific Hebrew Orphan Asylum and Home, which is the Eureka Benevolent Society and the Roman Catholic Orphan Asylum. And he was a good person by all accounts. And he left a really thriving business to his four nephews. And that was the genesis of the Levi Strauss Company. Very good. So where is the business today? And like as a stock, how long has it been public? Because obviously it's 170 yeah, so, years old or whatever. Exactly. So they kind of stayed off the public markets for well over 100 years. And um, they went public actually for their second time in March 2019. Uh, actually, no, they first went public in 1971. And then they took it private again in 1985. And in 2019, they IPO'd all over again. And we talked about it. I remember our former colleague, Alicia, who used to be our head of brand. She was a fan. And, and you know, we were all on the kind of buy what you believe in conversation. I remember Alicia uh, as someone who had a very good insight into the whole fashion industry, having worked in, in it in, in London, you know, was very interested in the IPO and we spoke about it in the podcast. And when it IPO'd there in 2019, the company shares were priced at $17 a pop, um, which valued the business at about $6.6 billion. So I have um, my fact set 
dashboard open in front of me today it's um market cap is 5.2 billion so it's it's dropped quite a bit from 6.6 um it has a p ratio of below 12 11.8 and effectively the the shape of the curve was it went down a bit it went up a bit then it went down a bit, then it went up a bit. This is this is good listening for a reason. <laughs> yeah, that's for what a <laughs> Describing this is graphs exciting. is the real podcast. <laughs> yeah. But gem. yeah, it went down a bit, it went up a bit, and now it's down a bit. So um it <laughs> um so basically there it's a it's a five billion dollar, five point two billion dollar business. Shares are about fourteen dollars a pop. It has a P ratio, which means it's profitable on a 12-month trading basis but there's the question is why would we want to invest if at all now hmm. and what's the answer to that yeah well okay so i suppose if we go uh through the most recent announcement um last thursday so that's um a week ago a week and a day ago for our listeners um levi's reported a nine percent fall in revenue for the quarter that ended just at the end of May compared to the previous quarter a year earlier. And this underperformed what all the analysts on Wall Street were predicting. And I think our more seasoned listeners and investors are aware that basically invest uh, um, that Wall Street basically pulls analysts of a particular sector. They come up with an average number for earnings per share and that number is put out there and everybody watches to see if a company outperforms or underperforms it. So that's what I mean when I say they, they missed Wall Street's predictions. But notably, the company reported a net loss of only $1.6 million. And I'm not doing an Austin Paris mistake there. It was only just they lost $1.6 million for a business of its size. Um, that's not a lot of money. But this was its first negative quarter since the 2020 pandemic's initial impact. And, and shares, which were already down by 8.3% for the year, dropped another 6% after they made that announcement. So it wasn't well received and and the net loss from the quarters really attributed to these higher operational costs and the company in, increased advertising expenditure uh, because these five the, the iconic 501 jeans were 150 years old and they decided to go heavy on adverts and of course these ads did increase direct to consumer sales by about 14% but uh, any associated margin advantages were offset by you know the advertising costs however and this is where the plot thickens. Wholesale revenue for Levi's fell by 22%. Um, now, some of that can be attributed to a change in its enterprise resource planning, um, which Levi's had already said was coming. I don't know, but I just wonder, are Levi's a desirable brand out there? And I've often said on this podcast, like, don't talk to me about fashion, pharma, and to a lesser extent, banking. Um you know, with pharmaceuticals, you you really, you need to, often CEO doesn't even know what's happening. But when it comes to fashion, and I've invested in, heaven knows how many fashion companies in the last 25 years, but like one of the things is being able to read the, um, read the market. And I don't know, what do you guys think? I mean, are Levi's, like, what's your view of the brand? It's, it's interesting because if you ever go to any thrift stores or secondhand stores, good ones, anyways, they're going to have mm. a Levi's section. Oh, like it's it's that durable, it's the durable quality, but it's also the vintage feel. I wonder, are they losing a lot of their market to secondary sellers? 
Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, is I think Levi's as a brand is very desirable, but they are almost shot in the foot by their own quality, because it does mean that a phenomenal amount of Levi stock ends up in secondhand stores and people like people love 501 jeans but particularly you hear a lot of young people talk about vintage 501 jeans like they're looking for ones that were released in the 80s and 90s um i know there's a huge um push to find orange label levi's because they were if they have an orange label it means they were manufactured in the united states which i think levi's moved manufacturing in the 90s to taiwan and so if they have a red label today it means that they're manufactured abroad and people really want um the american made stuff because it's often of a very high quality um and i think it's just the thing of of um, I think like 80s and 90s dressing is very in at the minute and people I think want the pieces from from the era itself because as you said like I do think Levi's is an iconic American brand and it is as recognizable as Coca-Cola but it does I think people want the old brand they want to be yeah. associated with what it was like it's vintage style yeah if you could get a slick marketing exec to come in and somehow capitalize on that, I think you could really turn around sales. If you could find old stock or rebuy it or find some way where it's vintage, but it's also coming from Levi's themselves and giving, because there's a huge demand there, but Levi's isn't the one to capture that value. Yeah, they have launched a secondhand section on their website. I know that it's um, expensive because that is the thing of like you're essentially then buying um, like you're you're buying it from someone who said to source it. And it always then means that whatever vintage stuff you're buying is going to be way more expensive than if you put in the work and go to the thrift store. Um, I do. But I know that that is something that they're looking into. But I, I remember two years ago, I did an awful lot of research into the vintage clothing market and looked at a, a number of stocks that were specialized in that. And truly all of that, like I could not find one that you'd be like, yeah, that's appealing. We should buy that because it is so difficult to source merchandise. And it means that your costs can just get out of control so quickly because there's just no stability or reliability in your ability to to find items. Mm, yeah. When I was in the school, when I was in school, for the most part, which was in the 80s and the, the late part of the 80s, it was the coolest thing of all to have Levi's jeans. Like that was like the the pinnacle of of cool especially as we were here in ireland and i remember once a guy in my class telling uh his his classmates telling the rest of us that he'd paid 100 pounds for a pair of levi jeans now you know ireland in the 80s is not known for its prosperity and my school wasn't a prosperous school and i remember going home and telling my parents and they were actually annoyed by me even telling them and that's not because they were cranky souls they weren't they were uh, they were anything but but this was so at odds with their value set that it actually angered them that i was even repeating the story and this just made it even cooler for me but i remember i went i lived in maine in 1988 and i remember being brought to a um a levi's uh i don't know what you call these mega shops mega stores what do you call them just uh, Anne marie you know where it only sells one brand like a like a Levi's. Well, it was it an was it an outlet? Yeah, but outlets I think have discounted merchandise. Was that f- f- flat flagship store? Is that it? Yeah, it could be that. Yeah, it was actually. I'm sure the place still exists because there was it was called Kittery Trading Post. I'm sure if I Google that, I'd find the place. But this Kittery Trading Post had a gun shop, and I don't mean like a modest gun shop. This thing was like a Walmart for guns, and then on the other side of the car park there was a levi's 
shop. It was so American for a young Irish guy. And um, I remember being fascinated at the gun shop because I'd never seen a gun, um, uh, thankfully, and haven't seen too many or any since. But um, but the Levi's shop was so much denim and it was mad. Anyway, look, getting back to the moment, Le- Levi's, they aim to make 55% of sales direct to consumer uh, by 2027. Now, that figure at the minute is about 46%. So clearly they see a path to gaining more market share on direct consumer. But the losses in the last quarter uh, suggest that concentrating on direct to consumer could really be a costly strategy, both in terms of, you know, the expenses that they build through building the marketing and then other distractions from their wholesale operations, which still at the moment forms the majority of his business and of their business. But what I found interesting was the CEO of Levi's, a guy called Chip Berg, said that the price difference between Levi's value tier products, which are sold through wholesale channels and competitors offerings had become too wide, which wasn't appealing to lower to middle income customers who are, you know, feeling the impact of higher inflation and slowing economy and all the usual stuff. And in response, the company is reducing prices on these products to shift inventory. And I don't I don't like this because it reminds me of Under Armour and I didn't go and re-research the Under Armour story. I think you covered it there, Anne-Marie, about a year ago, but um, like Under Armour had, you know, warehouses full of stuff and that brand suddenly became uh, uncooled by the fact that it was um, discounted, it was in outlet malls, it was the brand all of a sudden your your dad bought and and I, I really hope that they don't kind of follow in, in the same footsteps. But as of 2022, Levi Strauss held the leading global jeans market with a share of only about 6%. So they're their biggest in the world with a global share of 6%. Um, the owner of Lee and Wrangler, which is a brand called Contour, sorry, a company called Contour Brands, isn't that far behind. They've got a 4% global market share. Um, now to maintain its lead, Levi needs to, as we said, remain relevant to those middle to lower income customers who buy jeans through normal or non-dedicated shops like Coles and JCPenney's and all that kind of stuff and still manage to promote their premium direct consumer offerings without impacting their bottom line. And I think what we're looking at now when I gave that fascinating description of their share price graph, um, <laughs> that's what, <laughs> for those taking notes, I said it went down a bit and up a bit and down a bit. Now that last down a bit, that is really reflecting what I think is a lot of the negativity and um uh, really can it get back to its ipo valuation that's that's the first step i guess if you were sitting in levi's um hq you'd be like oh this is kind of rough now a few years ago we were bigger than we are now um they they really need to show shareholders that they can expand this direct consumer business without hurting their wholesale business without spending a whole ton of cash in remaining relevant during the line of sight of the average uh, jeans buyer. So I just thought it was an interesting story because it really is an old story that brings us right up now to um, discounted malls. Yeah. Did you hear about the Levi's in the in the mine? Sorry, Mike, to cut you off. Um, is this a joke? 
No. Did I tell you the one about? Okay, go on. No. Um. Last year there was a guy, and he. I think it's New Mexico. He lives in, and he bought an old town, an old mining town. Like no one lived there anymore. He just bought up all of the land and all of the very old nineteenth-century properties. And there was a number of old gold mines, um, there. And he goes down into the gold mines to look for like archaeological finds. So he finds a lot of like old candles and things like that. And he pulled out a pair of Levi jeans from the eighteen eighties. A full pair was just down in the mine. Um, and they went to auction. They sold for like $85,000. No way. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Amazing. But uh, you know what? That is, we said, is it, that's part of America's history. And, and that's a really cool find. Yeah. Yeah. Down to mine. So, yeah, no, it looks like an interesting value play if you kind of believe in the turnaround there. Because I, I think the brand power almost puts a floor in, if that makes sense. Mm. Mm. True. Well, it's profitable, but I wouldn't touch it. That's just my bottom line. I wouldn't go near it. It's too, it's too like uh, it's too competitive. Like I mean, you know, we'll get a new a new brand in jeans will emerge. Like I remember a couple of years ago, the hottest brand uh, for females, as far as I could see, was like Seven for All Mankind. And a couple of years before that, I'd bought shares in a company called True Religion, which had an edge on design, and and I think it went kaput or was bought out. So like you know, I just don't. Maybe it's just my age and where I live. But I don't know if anyone cares about the brand of jeans anymore. Do they just look and feel good? Mm, yeah. Well, I also think women's jeans, that market is really segmented. There are so many mm. companies that make jeans. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. A couple of years ago, a good few years ago, I was in New York and I went to the Levi's flagship store. And sorry, I know I don't want to over-egg the story here. I'll shut <laughs> up now after this. And you could customize them. And part of the customization process where you could throw bleach at them and all this stuff was they pin them out on a, all these kind of like stay wires really tight and you could get a shotgun and shoot them and it was, it was <laughs> riveted so you could only point it at the so you had your own unique kind of bullet holes or whatever spray holes from it and i just thought wow this is the ultimate in customization it's like a piece of art and of course they cost a fortune okay let's uh let's move on from that one actually do you want to hear a terrible joke before we move on yeah okay what does a shark in jeans what uh? What noise does it make? Denim, denim. Oh God! Denim, 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 denim. Please airbrush that out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on that uh, bit of comedic genius, we're just gonna promote our email service, Charging and Fearless. So we're delivering to you with Charging and Fearless one of the most unique products on the market, and it's completely free. No one else is covering the markets we've covered with Charging and Ferris, where we deliver to you a new weekly stock pitch that could be from Amsterdam, Tokyo, Paris, or somewhere in between. So that is a completely free stock pitch every week. You'll have a red in 30 seconds flat, and we can almost guarantee most of these companies are going to be brand new to you, which is where you get an edge. So sh- sign up in the show notes for this episode. Okay, let's run through a uh, big deal or no deal. Anne-Marie, this is from a Wall Street Journal investigative report that found that about 80% of Google's video ad placements on third-party sites violated promise standards. Big deal or no big deal? Um, big deal, but I would like to watch it just to see what Google does. I went and had a look at this. The study was conducted by an outside company called Analytics, and uh, they they went and polled, I think, 1,800 placements. Um, and this is for an external service that Google runs um, where it's the Google Video Partners site where essentially, like, you produce an ad and video, and then, you know, when you're, like, on 
a web like a newspaper website and a video starts playing out of nowhere and it's so loud and you can't figure out how to turn it off that's this surface um and basically the um analytics was able to show that 80 percent of the videos are being placed on websites that wouldn't normally pass google standards you know they're inappropriate for some reason and or you know a, an advertiser maybe wouldn't want their content associated with something on there um but Google has responded and said that we would actually love to see the study and we want to see where you saw these and, and that sort of thing. So um, that is kind of where I'm interested I, uh, to see what their response is and, and to see, you know, if they have a way to, to disprove this or, you know, if it is if it is true, if, you know, if they have some reasoning. Um, but this has caused, you know, we have heard stirs from a few companies saying, oh, we would like our money back. You know, we don't trust Google to do our advertising. Um, but I haven't seen that be, you know, a, a huge a huge wave of, of businesses yet um but the main takeaway i had from it it's a huge reminder that like you you have you have to place so much blind trust in your advertising mm. platform because you don't know where the stuff is going to end up you're just they're just giving you a rough approximation of oh yeah we'll target this demographic and then you just say yes but you don't really know like what that what that can mean so um yeah definitely an inter- interesting story worth watching yeah i read the story and i was i was kind of not shocked but it just really exposed how murky this yeah. pro- programmatic advertising is i think they said it's that like 23 percent of uh programmatic ad dollars is wasted but no no one knows which 23 percent yeah so yeah that blind trust is kind of slightly worrying um okay i've stolen a quote from a wider piece here on rivian emmet that i thought just had to be highlighted basically so the quote is the vehicles rivian sold in the first quarter for roughly 83 grand a pop on average cost about 150 grand each to manufacture big deal or no big deal yeah and just to fill in a blank for some of our listeners rivian is a u.s electric vehicle manufacturer it was founded in 2009 and it basically produces an suv and a pickup truck and it has i think some b2b products like amazon's last mile delivery vans and this that and the other and if you watched long way up on apple tv with ewan mcgregor and charlie burman you would have seen uh, their first vehicles take on Patagonia with the intrepid protagonists, as it were. Uh, wait, the passionate Patagonian protagonists. No, the personable passionate pra- Patagonian keep, protagonists. Keep, keep going, we'll just pick the best <laughs> one. <laughs> anyway, earlier this week, the Wall Street Journal published a piece, and the headline was, Rivian Rally Makes No Sense Unless it raises cash and that's the sum total of all the parts of the story of Rivian uh, summated in in just one headline almost two weeks ago they reported a better than expected production and delivery numbers for the second quarter and then they reiterated their guidance for the full year and you know everyone got excited and the Wall Street Journal in that piece I mentioned said that the bigger question now is just how many customers want their very expensive EVs because it says on their on their website that vehicles are available in two weeks or less, which really points out a very short order book. You know, you, it, that's not reassuringly slow. Like, here's my deposit. Okay, see you next Friday. Uh, the reason why Rivian hasn't faced much competition in the EV truck market so far is that cost-effective uh, electric pickups are very hard to engineer and they require tons of expensive batteries and and as you said they sold for eighty three thousand dollars and cost 150k a pop to make and that's not nice so it's not negligible and i think it is a big deal and not a good one so i think it is a big deal what about yeah. yourself would you 
Well, I think the stock nearly doubled in the space of five days there last week. So yeah, that's right. I wasn't I wasn't yeah. rushing out of my door to buy it anyways. I'm not going near that yeah. anytime soon. I'd rush out to buy a truck, one of their trucks. I think that they are fine looking yokes. Yeah, they're m- much nicer than the Cybertruck. And apparently yeah, you're getting a deal because it's worth 150 grand yeah. and you're getting it for 83. <laughs> Strip it down and sell the back <laughs> to, uh, to lose it or something. There's an arbitrage here somewhere. <laughs> okay, um, let's finish up with an elevator pitch. This is a very interesting company this week. So, Amory, tell us about MA Research Institute. Yeah, this is actually a really cool company that came up on some of my financial screeners. Um, but then I pause on it because it's a little bit small and I, t- you know, I tend not to go for anything too, too risky. And then like two weeks later, I saw a TikTok about it, which I know TikTok is not exactly where you should be doing all your financial research. But then that kind of drew me in. And, the, and the, the TikTok in question was actually made by Forbes because the guy who's the CEO of this company is now Japan's youngest billionaire. And so they were talking about his process to create this business. And it's a really wonderful story, which is um, in 2015, a Japanese entrepreneur called Shusaki Sagami um, He owned a fashion company at the time called Alpaca, and it was going through the process of being acquired. And it meant that he had to sit around for over a year while the whole acquisition kind of went through and they negotiated things and signed off contracts and all this stuff. And he was going, Jesus, this is very inefficient. And then at the same time, his grandfather, who had owned a shop for almost the entirety of his life, and it was a successful little business, um, was going. he was really upset because he was going to have to close it down because he couldn't find someone to, to take it off his hands, basically, because he wanted to retire. Um, and that opened Sagami's eyes. And he was like, there could be an, a problem here that I could make a solution for. So um, he said, up m Research Institute, which is dedicated to finding ways to accelerate the acquisition process through AI. So that basically means that these businesses on average now get bought and sold in six months, which is a significant improvement. That's like twice as fast. Um, and then he also wanted his business to be focused on small to medium-sized profitable enterprises in Japan, which are, there are so many of them. 99% of companies in Japan are small or medium-sized enterprises. And because of the socioeconomic nature of Japan as as we've discussed for decades they have a shrinking population they have a lot of retirees and not very many young people it means it's very difficult for these retirees to find someone to take over their businesses even though they're doing really well um and this company has had like great success like it's very very popular um this year they closed out 508 deals which is up 100 percent from last year um and they are incredibly profitable they have a 59 percent operating margin because all they're doing is handling you know the 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 handover of this business from one company Mm -hmm. to another and then the middleman yeah and then something came out in the forbes interview which i thought was really interesting was they have like been so warmly welcomed by the retirees of Japan and, and people have been so impressed dealing with them that it actually means that these older Japanese people then come back to, to M&A and they say, hey, um, I got my check like for my buyout, but I, I don't know what to do with it. And so now they're uh, doing research into they're considering starting like a managed brokerage fund. So then these retirees have somewhere to kind of place their money so it can grow a bit. So then if they want to pass it down, um, it you know, will have earned a bit of interest. I thought so you were going to say that they in, buy shares in M&A Research Institute. No. It's like the, <laughs> the ultimate virtuous cycle. Yeah, no, it's it's. I think it's just kind of set up a, a, a kind of slow moving fund for them to have, you know, because I suppose, yeah, if you get a massive check, you're already retired. Uh, you've paid for your house you would kind of be like what am I supposed to do with all this cash I don't want to just kind of have it sitting around so it's 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 kind of a brilliant business because I often find that when we're looking for companies to invest in we're looking for a company that like could go international and grow for decades and you know you want this kind of one size fit one size fits all company and I 
was it was really nice to kind of find a business that has found a niche within a certain country for a cultural reason and has just noticed hey like no one is addressing this no one is helping out these people i'm going to start this business and it's being very successful it actually reminds me a lot of copang which is like the korean version of amazon which has basically no international ambitions they're just like we are gonna work in korea and do an absolutely incredible job and become the only player in the game and make a bunch of money and so that's kind of what MA research reminds me of that being said it is a ton- it is a pretty small business and it's like moving like crazy and its valuation is insane its market cap right now is just sitting at 1.44 billion usd um and it only made last year 27 million in revenue which means it's trading at like a huge huge um what is it 57 price to sales and 167 price to earnings which that is sky high um but it is because it's kind of caught some international attention now i think the stock is up well over 350 percent since it ipo'd last year on top of that you know there's kind of a general interest in japanese stocks so i think it's kind of been caught up in that wave um but it's it's kind of one I want to keep an eye on if if it's if its valuation were to come down. It's such a cool little um, business, and it, I was very impressed with their CEO. And it's like over seventy percent insider ownership. He's not going anywhere. So, um, yeah, it was a cool company. It's a very st- a story business. Yeah, and I know it's very early doors, but growing revenue at two hundred percent year over year always kind of helps. Yeah, so hopefully it, it earns its valuation in the next couple of years, and then we can give it a second look. That's good. Cool. So M&A research, research Institute, is that the name of it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's trading in Tokyo. It does not have an ADR. So you got to, if you want to buy it, you have to buy it in Tokyo, which the unfortunate part of that is in Japan, you have to buy at least a hundred shares. Um, so that might be annoying for you if, you know, if you only wanted to pick up a small amount and it's ticker symbol there is nine, five, five, two. We need to set up a like interactive brokers sponsorship deal here or something where we push everyone yeah. to international stocks. Okay, I like that business. Um, very interesting. So before we finish up, I just want to do a quick word here from our friends at Vodafone Business. Um, Vodafone Business has always been a reliable pri- provider for mobile and broadband needs, but they are now so much more. Did you know they now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders? They're no longer a telecoms provider. They're a comprehensive technology partner. They're really stepping up stepping up to help businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world, offering insightful digital advice and cutting-edge solutions on top of their dependable mobile network and broadband services. So if you're on a digital journey yourself, remember Vodafone Business is there to support, guide, and empower you every step of the way. Oh, I always need to take a breath after that. Um, Emmett, Emery, thank you very much for joining me on today's show, and thanks everyone for listening. Remember, if you have any questions you like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us, leave a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today, and we will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.